This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. John Wertheim here is this week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Tennis is back. We have Australian Open qualifying and a lot of nice stories to stem from that. We have a tournament in Delray as we track this. There is a final about to be played. We have Arena Sabalenka continuing her hot streak going, winning in Abu Dhabi. We do also, however, have another crazy, crazy week in the world. It seems a little off-tone and uh, tone-deaf to talk match results and... Uh, tennis chatter given the fragility of democracy at least here in the u.s so i thought we'd do something different uh we're going to talk about social media with a tennis connection but this is a broad conversation about social media with our guest randy fernando he's the co-founder and executive director of the center for humane technology you may well have remembered him his center and, and randy himself speaking uh eloquently in the social dilemma the netflix uh blockbuster that came out a few months ago randy's also a tennis fan he reached out uh after we referenced social dilemma in a column we had a very nice uh back and forth so i invited him to come on i thought he would be an appropriate guest this week uh when social media figures so prominently in the news when a president has been deplatformed which uh for many candidly self-included uh was well deserved for gross abuses um we talked some tennis too. Social media obviously is a big uh, a big factor in tennis today. Generally, a force of good, a way to corral and rein in this, this sprawling sport that doesn't really have a, a center that travels the world. Social media also has a uh, a less appealing side in tennis. Players have been trolled. We've talked uh, with a number of players, Madison Keys most prominently, about uh, the problem of trolls and abusive behavior, even threats that come on social media. So. Uh, this is a, a sprawling, wide-ranging conversation about social media, how it impacts all of us, and also uh, how it impacts tennis. So without further ado, here is a terrific, insightful conversation with, uh, with Randy. I thought we'd start with the social dilemma, which really was the, the Netflix fair that punched through, as we say. There's a lot of programming we never get to. This was the opposite. Everyone was talking about this. How did you, how'd you experience this film, and how did you experience the aftermath? I think uh, what happened with this film, uh, the reason it took off so much is that it's talking about an issue that everyone resonates with, everyone in this audience, anyone who has Netflix definitely resonates with this issue. And unlike many other very important issues in the world, 
this one, because there's such a direct experience that you encounter every single day and you watch and you look around the people around you are, are influenced, your kids are impacted by it, and now the whole political sphere is impacted by it, it makes you very interested in the topic. And so right now we, we estimate something like 100 million people have seen this film. It was amazing. In the first, uh, first month, Netflix reported 38 million households. So by now, now it's about three months afterwards, it's, uh, it's been crazy. Sure, surely I'm not the first person to point out the irony that we're talking about uh, the addictive of nature of social media, and we're, we're talking about uh, you know, some, some of the brain scrambling, and we're all watching this on our phones. Of course, and, and on Netflix, right? So all of, the, all of the, these choices, you know, those aren't things we really got to choose. We were lucky to be featured in this film. I, I and I think everyone is very grateful that it got such broad distribution um, because it's a lesson that's just very timely. When everyone is stuck on these platforms more than ever, it's more important than ever that they understand how the platforms work and what the risks are and where it's sort of where the whole system is driving us. Uh, so I'm really glad, right, that that came and the fact that there were uh, basically voices from people who were involved in the production of the platforms from the early days adds a lot of credibility, right, to people saying, oh, okay, that's how it works. I get it. That's helpful. Uh, I mean, what, one thing I've noticed is we, we went very quickly from, is this a force of good? Is this a force of evil? Would I be happier without this? Should I turn off Twitter to, it's like saying, I, you know, am I better off without electricity? Well, it's, at some level, it doesn't matter. It's just, this is the new reality and figure out a way to have some strategies for dealing with it. Where, where is, I mean, as you see, it's just big, big picture. Where, where is social media right now? Yeah, you know, I think things have changed quite dramatically in this last week or two. Um, what we've really just witnessed is a digital impeachment, right? It's a digital impeachment of the president. And uh, that's happening on a lot of different platforms, not just social media, but it shows the kind of power that these companies wield and the platforms wield. Um, well, I, mean, I, I would say, but before the digital impeachment, there was a, at some level, a, a digital insurrection that then led to a real insurrection. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, and so... I think the challenge here is that the, the same tools that are useful for organizing for good can also be used to organize insurrections, right? right? So it becomes really tricky. And, and I think a lot of our premise is about which way is the platform tilted by default because of its emphasis on virality and because of the business model and the way they make money. So that leads to a sense of an inevitable tilt. Everything is tilted a little bit more towards outrage and sensationalism and performative acts, right? And so this idea of doing something crazy, recording yourself doing it, when you turn that into an insurrection level moment, then that makes the stage that much more, more dangerous. So this is sort of where the, the platforms tend to drive people. And that's, I think, the key point. If, if the platforms drive people to the margins, towards the extremes, right? No, nobody wants yes. down the middle content and the, the algorithms are, are set, so exactly. we're pushed. Um, exactly. to, to what extent do we feel like social media is uh, complicit in the events of the last week? 
I think it's a significant uh, portion of the conditions that are set. I mean, conditions are complicated, right? When, when something like this emerges, of, of course, there are so many different conditions that are in play. Uh, but there is no doubt that social media plays a critical role in this kind of moment because it allows... So take the example, right? In this case, we have a specific example of, of a president who has now been deplatformed. Right. But even if you remove the actor who was spreading the information, all of the training that happened to all of the minds inside the system remains. And this is sort of the key point that somehow is so often forgotten, right? The, the platforms take this approach of, hey, don't worry, we've got fact checkers. We will find stuff and we will take it down. Don't worry, we'll take it down. But by the time it's taken down, most of the time, that content has already been viewed by millions of people. Now, what about the training process that's done there? And when you combine that with the fact that research shows that you, when we form an opinion, we don't quickly change out of it. So that first opinion that we form about a particular topic uh, sticks. It sticks really well. And so we have to be very careful. Then. How much of this is just the novelty of this. I mean, the, the you know, the, the print, printing press, we were used to, uh, so, something's written, we've had 500 plus years to adjust to written content. Yes. We've had whatever, uh, less than 20 years to adjust to social media content. How much of this yes. is just the same things we would have had with Gutenberg, uh, you know, in, in the early 1500s? This question comes up a lot, John, and I think uh, the key thing to emphasize here is the what are the differences? What's different now? So first of all, most of the content is viewed by people on their devices, which are with them 24-7, really 24-7 for many, many people. Uh, so the access, right, the fact that it's coming to your brain wherever you are, where before, before that you would have had to search, right? With Gutenberg, you're looking for a book, you're looking in a library, or there's just so much more friction to actually engaging with the content. So that's one thing. The second thing is the micro-targeting. Micro-targeting is, is perhaps the most dangerous aspect of this particular species of persuasion, especially when it comes to platforms that allow political actors to lie in political ads to micro-targeted audiences without fact-checking. So what that allows you to do is, you know, in, in the past, if you had a message and you wanted to send it to a particular audience, you go on TV or you go on some big platform that everyone can see and you make some set of promises. Now, if you go to another audience and make a contradictory set of promises, people would know. But the difference here is when you can micro-target content to specific, very small audiences, and we're talking about like hundreds of thousands of variations of content, some of which contradicts each other. But these small audiences never get to see what the other audience has heard. And so you can actually plant division. And this can be done by malicious actors. It can be done by domestic actors, foreign actors. It's, it's using the business model as designed. It's not some kind of flaw, right? It's, it's designed to be used that way. It's crazy. I mean, this, this is one thing that I've, I've never quite figured out about this, this administration, which, which seems to me, you know, we, we all have our political views. And I, I feel like the, the role of incompetence is something that probably haven't gotten it to do just because it's outrageousness, but 
who is doing this micro-targeting? I mean, you're, you're telling me that the, the Trump tech team is sufficiently savvy that they're sending out dozens of contradictory messages micro-targeted to different groups? I, I'm saying that all political campaigns, that's the playbook. That's how you do it. I, I would hope. Now, I don't know what the percentage of contradictory content is, right? I don't have those statistics. Right. But, but I would rest assured that people who, who desperately want to win will try to do what, what they can within the rules, right? People, people tend to play within the rules. And if the rules are set in a way that is highly distorting for society, they're not going to worry that much about it most of the time, which is really disappointing. But that's, that's how it goes. What's the role of, of confirmation bias in all this? In, in the sense of, uh, you know, I mean, I'll give you, we'll, we'll take this back to tennis eventually, but I'll give you a, yeah. a, a player, I don't know if you saw this, that uh, he, he was fined because he didn't want to do an interview. It entailed wearing a mask. And if you, you look at his social media feed, it certainly bespeaks certain sensibilities. He's clarified it a little bit, but I'm thinking mm -hmm. if you're on the social media feed and we're all in our silos and everything I'm reading is, masks inhibit freedom and this is whatever it is masks have been politicized and somehow this is not legitimate um and that's all the information i'm getting yes it's not unreasonable that when i'm interviewed on court i'm not inclined to wear a mask what, what right. is the role of, of this sort of perpetuating bias it's the natural thing is what humans do right a lot of these evolutionary biases that served us very well a long time ago aren't serving us as well now. And I think one of our core tenets is that when you build a platform that inherently benefits when people take advantage of human biases, that is problematic. And that's part of what tilts it, right? That's why fake news travels six times faster than real news, right? That is, it's because of our biases. We love sensational, we, that's just kind of how the human mind works. We tend to be highly social animals, and so the the idea of um, what do other people think about me is very important to us. Now, historically, that was very important when we were living in communities, and we needed we needed our communities to protect each other and stay alive. Things have changed, but now we've got those same those same signals being um, basically being challenged, or the signals are lighting up at a much, much higher rate than they were ever intended to, right? Again, because the devices are with us all the time. Right. Uh, there's a lot more danger now, right? So the kind of hacking and the same thing happens with respect to addiction. The, the little dopamine hits that are supposed to reward you for doing things that'll help you survive, that are supposed to be, uh, you know, make sure you keep getting fed and you procreate, like these, these little dopamine hits are there to help us. But when we build systems that hijack those reward systems and they give us too much of that and then the receptors get overloaded and they start malfunctioning now we have a much bigger problem so all of these pieces are, are coming together with social media is the solution uh can we, can we change the algorithm move people closer to the middle change what's igniting this dopamine rush and maybe modify behavior or is it too late for that these are great questions. I think actually some of the the answers about the future may have changed now because now that the platforms have shown that they also recognize they're not just neutral, uh, 
they do have a responsibility and the employees certainly get it, right? The employees are pushing really hard. Uh, there are so many well-intended employees who are pushing to do the right thing. Right. But when you play that out, and now you've taken the step of removing, right, the president of the United States from a platform, it shows that it's decidedly not neutral. So now you start to get into this conversation about law and, and regulation and saying, hey, should the platforms continue to have this free pass, right? And saying, hey, we were just platforms. We're right. not responsible we're, for the content. Right, right. Right. And, but once you open that, and this is why I think historically they've been so hesitant to walk anywhere near this line, because once the first chink in the armor is opened up, the whole thing starts to crumble, right? Because once that protective regulation is gone, you are now liable for everything, right? Everything on the platforms and every issue. And that could actually lead to the different world. When you say, what, what, what would it look like? What is better? Um, we can actually get to a, a better world where platforms actually are designed from the ground up. So for example, uh, think about trust. In, in our world, in every relationship that you have that is meaningful, there's got to be a foundation of trust. And trust comes from knowing that people aren't telling lies to you, right? That like fake news is not really an option, right? Lying is not a way you build trust in society or with friends. And we should actually have systems that don't reward lying or falsification or even, even hyperbolic exaggeration, right? So not outright lying, but even the idea of saying, how do you compete in this attention economy? Right? If, if you have something that you'd like to say, how do you make sure you're heard? And there's always this tendency to exaggerate a little bit more, to be a little more hyperbolic, and then to tend to our line. Right. And, and so that reward system, if we change those, we can get to a much more uh, humane set of technologies. Should the president have, I mean, I, I can't, this, the, the fact that we're even saying this sentence, if we, we should like stand back. <laughs> it's, like, it's like saying there, uh, there, there are three tennis players that are closing in on... 60 majors among them. I mean, it's, it's crazy we're even having this conversation, but uh, should the president of the United States have been deplatformed? Did you, you support that? It's, we don't get into the politics of these things. Like what we try to focus, because we're, we're also a nonprofit, so we won't, we, we're not into like pro or con on any political situation, but we, our main commentary is about how these systems function and where it tilts us. Obviously, in this situation, you could, some people will say it's too late. Some people will say it, it's, we're not going far enough, right? Or it's, it's not right, and, and you get in this crazy situation. But what we can agree on is we don't want a digital world that doesn't have laws, right? That doesn't, it's just sort of running amok. And what happens is that the tech CEOs end up making basically unilateral choices supported, often pushed, by their employees to do the right thing. But that's not a good system, right? So we need to figure out ways that are more transparent where, where there's responsibility that is put on these platforms in a, in a way that we all understand and say, okay, that makes sense. Because the other problem is when you have this kind of unilateral action, you end up inciting more violence and more polarization, right? So the more deplatforming there is on one side and they lose their voice, you start to get into a situation where you, the only way to have your voice heard is to do more and more extreme things. I'm not sure that leads to a good result for, for, for everybody, right? So I think it's important to play out the moves um, 
more than one step, right, when we're making these kinds of actions. So we'll, we, we'll get to tennis. I want to promise everyone that, that tuned in for this. But I, I still, you're, you're in Oakland. Um, I, yes. I, think, I think a dimension of this, and I don't think it's enough coverage, is S Silicon Valley is very far from our legislature geographically. It's very far culturally. I don't know if you remember when the, the tech executives came to testify and someone yes. said, oh, you're, you're from Instagram. My grandson loves Instagram, as if this were a great coincidence. I mean, there's a real, so I, I feel a little like, you know, big, big tech's perhaps gotten a bit of a pass just because there's this, this gap, not just of 3,000 miles, but cultural, this gap between legislation and technology. But what, what happens inside the tech company? The, the workers say, this is awful, we're fomenting insurrection, and the tech executive says, what? <laughs> what it what's it the depends. I, mean, it, I think a lot of it has had to do with this um, staying in the neutrality zone, right? Saying, hey, we're neutral because, because of the strategy, right? When you open up this one fissure, I think we're going to see this playing out. Um, Joe Toscano, who is one of the people featured in The Social Dilemma, talked at length about this recently. And it, once that can of worms is open, it starts to be a lot more difficult. So I think there's always the business side that's challenging. But I think employees are really determined to, to have the right outcomes happen. And they understand, a lot of them, understand the responsibility uh, that the platforms hold. I also do want to mention that I think policymakers have come a long way from where they from the from the first round of hearings which is fantastic it is really hard it is very very difficult to keep up with these topics i think traditionally tech has gotten a pretty good pass right because exactly. in in terms of these systems we rely on regulation to to sort of control the unintended consequences or unaccounted for consequences right externalities of technology companies, of, it, of, of every company. But when you are a technology company, your uh, state of the world, right, things change much, much faster. It's a lot harder for anyone to keep up with the consequences. Like, what does it even mean that the, the new technology that's come out, what does that mean? What consequences will it have? What research exists? The research often lags far behind. Because you, you, you can't get the data, right? A lot of the companies, it's all private. You can't find the data. Uh, so it's quite difficult to to take legislative action. But, but I feel like there, there, we do this in the law all the time, right? Where there aren't perfect solutions and there aren't perfect places to, to plant our, our flag. There's going to be a slippery slope and there's going to be some double standards and some whatabouts. But it's something. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's... Yes. It, at least we've... Uh, at least we've taken a stand that it may not be 100% consistent and it may open it up to slippery slope arguments, but at least it's action. Yes, I think it's tricky. Of course, like barring the political environment as a whole, which makes it very hard to pass anything, right? So let, let's ignore that for a moment and just talk about what might even work. Uh, I think what's also tricky is you you end up talking a lot about antitrust regulation. But if you're too simplistic about it, and I'm not saying people are, I'm saying a lot of the public uh, perception, right? So companies are too big, let's break them up. But if they continue to operate on the same model, the same business model, right? <laughs> and the same idea of virality rules everything, 
Right. What you're going to get is a bunch of smaller companies that actually compete more on that same business model. And you could argue that is actually a worse outcome, right? So I think there's a lot of, it's hard to find the regulation that actually gets to the heart of these problems. And I would say uh, a lot of that ends up, if you're talking in the realm of the virality, in the realm of the business model, in the realm of content generation and adding some friction and some thoughtfulness and some trust and some integrity to the system and the information in it, then you're on the right track. Other tracks can, can end up being red herrings. And this is why policy is really, really hard in this space. Um, well, let, well, well, we'll, look, we'll get to tennis after this, but I, I'm still hung up on what, I mean, it seems to me is if, you know, and, and I think you're right. I mean, part of the issue is here, okay, fine. So you're off Twitter, but then you go to Parler. I mean, there's always going to be an incentive right. for a new player in the market. But if, if, if what you're, I mean, if, if Facebook and if, if you take the big, you know, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and they turn the faucets of their algorithms to push content towards the middle, yes, that, that would seem to me to go, that, that seemed to be a significant step in sort of get, getting this thing back on track. Yes, I think there's a lot of uh, redesign that would need to be done. So for example, let's just do a simple thought experiment. Sure. If, if you create a system that only has likes, comments, shares as like the basic first action that you can do, what is going to happen? Naturally, it's going to drive towards you see more stuff that you like, stuff that gets more likes gets shown to more people. And so you end up in the same situation automatically, basically, right? So you really have to think through the process a lot more carefully to say, well, what, what would it take to, to make this thing work, work for us, right? What are the kinds of questions that we can ask uh, when we're designing these processes? And uh, how do you create more shared truth, for example? And you need to have systems that actually reward people who were right consistently. And to penalize people who are just saying stuff that's random that clearly later found, is found out to be false, right, as an example. But these are really hard things. They involve a, a thorough rethink and redesign. You, you can't just say this idea of having a long scroll feed being the basic way everything works is probably not the right thing. Right. Yeah. But I, th I, think, I think you may have even mentioned, made this point in the film that that's all part of the addictive nature. The, the scroll is part of the addiction. You, you never get to the last page of the book or the last scene of the movie. It's this, this constant waterfall. No, that's right. Um, and that's, so that's infinite scroll is another one of these things that hacks are stopping cues. And so we, we tend to keep scrolling until something pops up, which is why you'll find so many long scroll web pages and very few that say, next, go here. Because the minute you introduce a decision point and a moment for the mind to stop and, and be like, what am I really doing here? A lot of times you close the page, right? Because it's not what you actually intended to do. Oh man, um, it's uh, we we think of addiction. You know, we, we used to think of addiction in terms of drugs and alcohol. This is maybe the same neurochemistry, but uh... it's absolutely it is absolutely the same neurochemistry. And so that's what we have to we have to think about. And and the other thing, I mean, two points that are I think really important just on this topic of what would be the right kind of stuff to build. Uh, one is focus on shared truth, which we talked about. Uh, and the second thing is rehumanization, right? We have, we have gotten to this point where the two sides 
really do often see each other in, in the whole site, like all 100 million, right? Millions and millions of people are generalized to being dehumanized, just terrible people. And actually, if we get together and we actually do something together with someone with opposing political viewpoints, and we don't know that yet, and we just have a meal with them, we would do a lot better, right? So there is something about how do we do that successfully? How do we understand that both sides are fighting for what they believe deeply to be true? Even the people who are at this insurrection, which is crazy, right? But so, so a lot of blame goes on the information environment and what happens, right? People get radicalized right. by terrible information environments and we have systems that encourage terrible information environment. So this is what we have to, we have to really focus on that part. Of course, we have to take action when people do an insurrection, right? This is inexcusable. So of course we have to take action, but different forms of these problems will keep coming up. There'll be new people to de-platform, right? New problems will keep coming up unless we address the root. What is generating all of these problems? Exactly. And, and part of that recognition, I mean, not to sound sappy, right, is that rehumanization has a lot to do with understanding the conditions. Why does someone do what they do? And people all want desperately, right, to be loved, to be recognized, to be heard, and to be part of something bigger. And if they find information that guides them to a bigger thing, that that aligns with kind of their worldview or, or it becomes their worldview, they're going to go do it because right. people are quite desperate for that stuff. But I, I, I don't know if this is a source of, of, of hope or hopelessness. I was struck, uh, I actually just happened to be in, in DC uh, last Wednesday when this was, was taking place. And I was really struck. You heard Senator after Senator, you, you heard so many people said this, this was a deeply anti-patriotic act and, and Hawley and Cruz yes. fomented this and it, and, and the actual marauders were there because they considered themselves patriots. So it wasn't absolutely right. Just, it wasn't just this broken truth. It was that these no. adjectives and concepts mean completely different things. So what, what you think of as deeply anti-patriotic, it is patriotism. If you ask those guys what they were doing storming the Capitol, they so we're, we're not overthrowing the government. We're the patriots. We're defending the government. Yeah, exactly. 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 You, you guys so are the out group, right? If you think, if you think that the election really was stolen, this is this is your last moment to protect, right? So that's kind of, I can understand like where that's coming from, but it doesn't make it right, obviously, right? But I think we have to do. We have to all take a little bit of time to understand why people do what they do and then the conditions that got them there and see what can we do to, to address them. Right. Um, um, I, I feel like we're, I feel like we're scrolling now. Can we, can we click on the, uh, let, let's go to the tennis tab. Uh, yes, let's, let's do let's it. Go to the tennis feed. No, because I, I do feel like, and, and I should point out, you know, we, we connected, uh, you're, you're a tennis fan. So we, we connected over tennis oh, yeah. to begin with, but I, you know, I've been reading your mailbag for 20 years, uh, at least 20 years, right? Uh, which is kind of amazing. Yeah, in college, because I used to read it. Uh, and once in a while, I'll send in a, a question and, and proudly share with my family and say, yeah, I got in the mailbag. So I, I was just, uh, was just uh, tickled, right? When, to see that you mentioned the, the social media, uh, social dilemma in, in your feed. 
So no, I, I thought it was terrific. I, uh, we're, we're dating ourselves, but when you started reading the mailbag and <laughs> I started doing it, we, we did not have this issue. We, uh, we did not. Players leave the court and the first thing they did after shaking hands was no. grab this little device out of their bag. Um, you know, I mean, I think obviously social media penetrates all of our lives. And uh, again, I feel like we're talking about electricity at this point, but I do think tennis has a, has a really unique relationship with social media for a variety of reasons. Um, a, I guess, let's, let's just sort of start there. I mean, what, what have you noticed um, te- tennis's interaction with, intersection with social media? Is? How would you characterize that? I, I think the, the main thing I want to say is that in general, the top tennis players are, are quite outstanding. I think role models in general for youth, they, they generally do a good job on social media. I feel like there's just a, uh, we couldn't ask for much more, right? Just in terms of how they how they act, how they conduct themselves, how they, um, you know, when they finish tournaments, right? The, the kinds of speeches they give, they do a really good job there. And several have been very uh, vocal also, especially Naomi Osaka, Serena Williams, Andy Murray. They've done a fantastic job. Like Rafa, Roger, I think have all done a lot um, for different causes. And I think Ultimately, because, like you said, we, we, we can't, it, social media is here, right? That, that's what it is. I think it does need to be dramatically redesigned, and I'm hoping that that future will come sooner than later. That is obviously something that at, at the Center for Humane Technology, we are fighting for that. Lots of people are fighting for this. And this moment may have catalyzed some of those changes. So the first thing is, because we are stuck in it, let's just remember that as long as they're, they're built around virality as kind of the core operating principle, the platforms are always going to perf- reward performative, narcissistic, and extreme behavior. So I just want to name that, right? And this is something I think for players and fans to both keep in mind. This is just the, the nature of the tilt. We have to use it responsibly. And, uh, you know, I have some thoughts on, I think, how we can, how we can do that, because I think that's where the conversation tends to go right if we're in it what are we going to do you know yeah i mean the one thing i'd point out about tennis is we, we always used to say you know, there, there are no home games right so it's not the, yes. the warrior the warriors go to the arena and or, or they go on the road mostly yeah right, right. um right. it's different in tennis so i feel like that the fan base isn't congregating at the at the home arena the way they do in conventional team sports the fan base yes. now congregates you know, on, on, on this thing. The virtual. Virtual, yeah. exactly. So if you're, if you're, I don't know, pick a player, I don't know, if you're Ma- Madison Keys, you may have an interaction with a fan in Dubai while you're in Melbourne. And I, I guess I'm wondering, in, in terms of, we talked about likes and we talked about this dopamine rush, in terms of fan bases going to your phones for your fans, where in can, other sports they simply reside in the stands, what, what's the impact of that? I don't think there's a I don't think there's a huge problem there. This is one of those aspects of social media that does work well. I think giving uh, you know the ability to connect people in in diverse locations, geographic locations, diverse backgrounds. I think the fact that we can do that with, with this technology is fantastic. I think there's a few principles that that I would use to determine is this a good interaction or a bad interaction. A, a lot of it. Uh, has to do with the spirit of, of service, right? So if we look at, say, 
uh, are we trying to help people have a better uh, understanding of like what I believe in, like what I'm about or what my life is like since, you know, you follow me for whatever reason, right? I'm a good tennis player. You follow me. Um, that's, that's very genuine, right? There's not a, no duplicitous intention there. I mean, obviously there's some connection to endorsements and like that is also inevitable. So we have to bring that into the, to the calculus, but in general, I feel, I don't know, I, it, it, there's a lot of sincerity out there in sharing, you know, just what's going on in, in life. Um, and I think that is fine. I, I think I tend to hold uh, athletes to a standard of saying, look, there is a role model aspect and a responsibility that comes with the gift that you, the gift that you have. And so it is actually very helpful to use your platform, you know, when the moment is right. I think Naomi Osaka was a perfect example of what she did at the US Open, helped to educate a lot of people. And, you know, just that has incredible, incredible value. Do you have thoughts on what the impact of uh, social media is on performance? Um, players spend a lot of time on their phone and they get the, they get the jolt of, hey, great match, or you look beautiful in that dress. They get some, yes. some you know, some splashback as well. Um, what is, uh, what, what do you think the impact of uh, performance might be? I am sure, so there's a few things here. So one is uh, mental recuperation for athletes is just as important as physical. So that's also important, right? When we are around these, uh, especially this, the, the particular mechanism, like the dopamine hit mechanism, does do something to the neurotransmitters in our brains, right? It just kind of, it dulls us. So now I don't know if there's research, you know, really translating what, what that looks like when you bring it to the tennis court. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of effect there. So I'd be wary. But that's, that's true regardless of whether you are a professional athlete or not, right? It's just a, you just want to be careful because you can find your brain dulled and then it becomes harder to start any action. So an example where I might see that show up is with respect to your training regimen and your discipline, it will start to eat into the discipline. Because that's what happens when you, if you sit at your computer screen, normal people right, have this, uh, if you're just a normal worker and you happen to work on the computer a lot, you will find that your ability to start a project, to open that document, to like write that thing you wanted to write, starts to dull a little bit as you distract yourself more and more and more. And, and then you end up in this procrastination loop. And I would expect that a very similar mechanism, because the underlying physiological mechanism is similar, I would expect some similar results uh, for something like tennis. Who are, who are the trolls? I mean, so you read some gushing praise, and it's very nice to see. And then every now and then there is just an unspeakably vile, targeted personal remark. What, what do you know about who those bots are? Like, what's what's going on there? Most of the time, uh, I got to say, I don't know a lot about trolls. I'm, it's not a topic I'm super interested in. Um, I do think, you know, resolving division is very important. And most of the time, so what I do, just in terms of political information, I go to both sides. And, I, and in fact, there's a really good website called allsides.com that has the left, the right, and the middle. And you can sort of see the different headlines all on one page. I do this a lot. I'll go in and, I mean, every day I do it because I think it is so important 
to be able to empathize with people who disagree. And so most of the time, I don't find positions where someone is saying something wild that I just cannot understand. I can normally empathize with where they're coming from. Obviously, like, I think a good example is the Roger Rafa Novak debate, right? People get really polarized about this topic when, and you've written about this a lot, right? I mean, the fact that we live in an era, we should be very grateful for what we've all gotten to see. They all have their talents. It's just so clear and you can be for one or the other, but they've done a pretty good job and they've been very cordial with each other. And you said all of this, right? That people, the fans should behave in the spirit of how the people they're cheering for behave. And if they themselves are behaving in such an upstanding way, why the heck can't we all do that too, right? I think it's pretty reasonable. Well, if, if only we could reach that point uh, with, with our politics in this country. Um, I, I wish. You, do you have data on how this breaks down on gender lines? Do, do men and women process this experience differently? Does the, the, the dopamine get processed differently? Uh, I don't know. I haven't seen any, any um, kind of notable, nothing notable comes to mind here. Right. Um, it's a good question, though. It, it's not what I've never been asked that question. So. Thanks. Um, I mean, I'm also wondering sort of if you are coaching a player and this whole idea of turn off your phone is just not real. It's, I mean, again, I, yeah, I, yeah. I keep lighting this to electricity. I mean, it's just we're, we're past that point. But if you were coaching a, a, a player and obviously it would depend on age and their personality, but I realize there's some variables here, but what, what would you tell them in terms of managing their experience with social media? Uh, this applies to players and fans, so I'll say this, and, and a lot has to do, there's a few key things. So one is, um, what, it sounds really crazy, but like, what do you want to be doing with your life? Like, what is your definition of how you want to spend your time skillfully? It's another variation of sort of, what does happiness mean to you? And that sounds, wow, like, did you really answer this question with that question? But a lot of people don't think about that question enough. And if you think about how you want your life, how you want your time to be spent, and what is important to you, a lot of times that will answer the question of how much should you be doing you know, activity X, Y, or Z. I would also encourage them to, to think a lot about intention. When you post, what is your intention? When, when you, not even when you post, before that, when you click the app, right? When you open the app, okay, what intention are you going in with? Because you'll find it gets distorted once you scroll around a little while, you really lose track of why you came and what you intended to do. The more you're in touch with that kind of thing, the more easily you can tr catch yourself and get out of it, right? You go in for what you need and you get out. So for example, if um, you just played a big match, of course, you're going to want to check your phone and see like, what have your friends said? What text did you get? These are natural things to do. And, and there the intention is pretty clean. That where it's more dangerous is where you start playing into the, the performative, the narcissistic or the extreme kinds of things. Um, and also to realize that fans are looking at you and they are going to follow, they're going to copy what you do just by nature of you being you. It's part of the success that you have. So I think this idea of what value am I adding? and 
staying in touch. You don't have to do it with every post, but staying in touch with working on behalf of something bigger. We talked about this earlier, right, in, in the podcast, that people are truly at their very, very best when we work on behalf of something bigger because it makes our ego small. It makes us, it makes the world much more expansive. And this is actually common across all the religious traditions, right? When you're working for something bigger is when you're at your best. So how can we do that more often? And how can, how can players even guide other people to, to doing that? So those are the kind of the basic, these are the, uh, I think, basic rules. And then, you know, the usual stuff like, oh my God, please turn off your notifications. Don't let your phone drive your behavior, right? These are, these are kind of basics. Uh, don't go into apps without knowing what you intend. Uh, try to listen to all sides of the conversation. Try to be aware. Try to be able to empathize. Um, stay away from toxic apps, apps that you know are toxic for you. Stay away from toxic people on, online. Don't engage with trolls, right? The usual thing. It's just not, it's not productive. If you do feel like you have to engage, don't do it publicly. Just do a private message. People are completely different when you take them out of the performative arena, right? People do a lot to perform in front of other people. And often de-escalation happens much, much better. If you say, hey, look, I'm trying to understand where you're coming from, like what you said, I, you know, is, is, I find really hard to read. And I'd like to understand where you're coming from. If, if that's important to you, like that's a much better approach. We, we talked about, uh, we talked about printing and we talked about, you know, it took a while to get us used to the printing press and then it became part of our life. There are other, you know, it, it occurs to me, there, there, there are other media that don't, don't last that long. I mean, you know, not, not boom times for cable TV. 25 no, years ago, everything was in, I mean, right. is, is this here to stay or is there another iteration of this? And we're going to look back at this the way we look back at, uh, you know, TRS 80s. I'm going to hope that actually what happened in the last week or so has really pointed out to the world. I, I think that, that a lot of work people have been doing, right? A lot of people have been talking about this. I think the social dilemma film really helped with so many people to kind of seed the conversation and make it safe to have this kind of conversation, right? Like there's a lot of groundwork that's been laid so people can actually talk about the topic with more sophistication. Uh, my hope is that all of that groundwork that many people have done has made it possible now for the, for the platforms to redefine how they actually work. I, whether they want to or not, I think we're going to have to get there because the current system is definitely not working. And this idea of just pruning out trouble as it comes up, but leaving the big, it's like, you know, uh, you put out each fire, but there's people with, with flamethrowers walking around and you, you're not talking to the people with the flamethrowers and you're not turning off the flamethrowers. Right. That's crazy. Well, well no, yeah, that's a great, uh, that's, I mean, we can, that, that's a great analogy too, because we're also drawn to the flamethrowers, right? We, we, we don't want to, Everyone loves talking to, about a flamethrower, yeah, right? Yeah, the guy with the, it, it, the scented candle, that's, that's no fun to look at. Um, yes. This uh, is part of the problem, right? And we have to actually have reward systems that are different. I mean, oh, another thing I would definitely uh, encourage is sort of, uh, and this is, I think, more on the fan side, but in terms of how to use social media skillfully, is reduce the stage size. Like, 
when you if you imagine okay what does it what does it feel like to have a good dinner at home right with friends back in the day right if you can remember what that was oh, yeah. it would be like six to eight people and, and it's just really intimate like a wonderful experience it's not an experience where there's 20 50 100 people all yelling at each other we all know this but we've now created these digital equivalents of you know just like a, a everyone's yelling in the public square right and that's just not a that's not a good model um this i i, I could uh I, I could do another hour here this i this is great it's fun. I, I, mean, I think it's fascinating i think that um i i think the film was tremendous and pointed out a lot of this so, some of this i think we intuited already but to see it laid out exactly and, you know i mean i think um I don't know what you call it, the, the dissident engineers. I mean, to see the people inside that now had some real guilt and some real reservations. What, um, I, I, there's a certain irony to this, but if, if people wanted to follow you and learn more about you, where would they go? Uh, I'm not on social media, really. Uh, uh, I have a little bit on Facebook to stay in touch with my friends, but the best thing to do is to go to humanetech.com, which is the Center for Humane Technologies website. You can join the movement if you care about this issue and you want to make some change happen. Uh, there's a simple sign up there and then we will send you information about steps you can take on your phone. Just that one sign up will sort of give you a lot of new information, how the system can actually change. Uh, we have a podcast. If you like podcasts, there's a podcast that goes into a lot of these issues in, in more depth called Your Undivided Attention. Uh, it's one of the top tech podcasts, and it's uh, we go deep on on a wide range of topics, including you know political things or democracy or truth and addiction and uh, uh, hatred, love, and all of these different topics. Right? How how uh, what causes people to be to be mean to each other? Right? Online, what drives hatred? What drives uh, online like systemic oppression right what happens uh, all of these topics are covered there and uh, there's also a take control page so humanetech.com slash take control has the list of things that you can try to get started to kind of protect yourself before you start to protect others and start to advocate to reform the system I commend you for the work you've done. I commend you for Thank you, uh, being a tennis fan. I commend you for not being on social media. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, we, we, we should all uh, have your sensibilities. Thank uh, you, John. This was great. I really uh, I appreciate it. This was, uh, you know, I, I you know, we should point out, you, Thank you. you and I communicated a few weeks ago before, again, I, I can't believe I'm using this sentence, but before the President of the United States was deplatformed for yes. uh, his social media behavior. But um, this was great. Well, uh, maybe we'll do this again, and uh, you know, when, when things settle down, and we can get back sure. to tell tell me who you like following and that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, happy to chat more anytime. Okay, thanks to our guest uh, Randy Fernando. Uh, enjoyed that conversation a lot. Not necessarily the most tennis-heavy podcast we've done, but uh, I thought that was informative and appropriate. This week, next week, we'll talk uh, more tennis. We have Australian Open qualifying. Now we have players headed down to Melbourne who have successfully qualified. We have results from a couple weeks of matches. We'll get back to, uh, to tennis talk. Uh, thanks as always to Jamie for her producing her sorcery behind the scenes. You can subscribe, leave a review, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Uh, that does it for this week. Hopefully uh, things may 
calm down a little between now and the next time we do this. Maybe that's too much to ask. Uh, Anyway, that does it for this week. Have a good week, everyone. Take care. Thank mm-hmm. you.